So it always takes a little bit to get used to a new situation. The fact that we even have light is actually quite a miracle compared to sometimes when we... Did you have solar power? In the, in the good old days. I don't what we did. Yeah. <laughs> Kerosene lamps or something. Anyway, good evening. We arrived a few days ago flying into Albuquerque Airport, which is not a huge airport, but it's busy enough. You know, flights coming in and out and a lot of people milling around. And as we were just picked up, I just picked up my bag from baggage claim. And, you know, that's one of the more chaotic places because people are arriving and leaving and milling around, trying to meet people, looking for their luggage. But I've picked up my bag and I'm towing it out, trying to get out of the airport. And I see this guy hurtling towards me and, you know, look around and there he's texting, trying to go through baggage claim with his eyes on his phone, you know, texting, trying to meet someone. And I just looked and I thought, that, you know, so ridiculous. So I kept going just to see when he would notice me. And luckily, you know, I would have stopped, of course. But just before collision point, he saw that, that there was someone there. It's like, oh, and he comes back to, where am I? What's happening? I, I'm here in the airport, you know, and there's people all around. And this is just a small example of what is happening all the time, right? I mean, you know, and that's not, that's a relatively benign or safe situation, I mean, it's crazy when, you know, we hear about the problems with people talking on cell phones while they're driving and how difficult that is. Well, it still boggles my mind, but apparently people are texting while they're driving. I mean, that's really crazy. I I don't know. I don't get that. But it's really how we live a lot of our lives. We're actually not present. We're either in our minds in the past or the future, or we're engaged in these conversations, these communications with someone who's not here physically with us. And so our minds are kind of somewhere else a lot of the time. We were talking about this at lunch, why it is so dangerous to talk on the phone and drive. You know, you can have a conversation with someone while you're driving, and yes, you could get distracted, but it doesn't seem anywhere near as dangerous or difficult. And what I said is I think some of it is that your mind or your imagination is creating this other reality where the conversation is happening with this person. They're not sharing your reality of the the landscape, the road, the situation that you're in. And so in creating that other reality, there's a big portion of your processing that's going to that, and it's not fully present, and that's why it's so dangerous. I was actually on another plane where they showed a documentary on all of the research that's been being done at the moment on this faculty of attention, because, I mean, people are seeing how distracted we are so often. And so they tracked a person through her day and all of the different uh, communications and, and interactions she had with people. And they talked about the fact that when you're on the phone, and so many people, again, are doing this, walking down the street, you're really not present. You're, you're with the person on the phone or you're thinking about the future or, again, this constructed, imaginary world, thought world that you create when we're in conversation, the world of ideas and just of thoughts. And we're not present. We're not actually here. And this, this documentary went through all of the different ways that impacts us. And I actually thought, you know, if they'd only have to add a little 
bit here and there, and it could have been a great advertisement for mindfulness. It was like <laughs> stealth dharma in this because it really showed how distracted we are. And what they pointed to in this scenario of someone walking down the street, talking on the cell phone to someone who's at a distance is that you're not fully present. And so what's running the show is the unconscious, subconscious, you could say, this automatic pilot kind of processing that keeps us navigating our environment because, of course, you know, people are coming and going and you're making your way here and there and going up and down steps and stopping at traffic lights, but you're not fully present for all of those decisions. What's actually running the show, they called the unconscious. And if you think about it, what is the field of the unconscious? It's all of our habits and conditioning and desires and wants and that stuff that's kind of lurking under the surface there that's not quite present. And I don't mean to make some big distinction between in this, you know, not some psychological distinction between conscious and unconscious. I think when in the way I'm using it, unconscious means what's not fully present, what's not fully at the forefront of our attention. But even so, what what is in that layer of our experience are these kind of driven forces that keep us going. And if we stop and look at them, they're actually often not that pretty. You know, we often talk about these forces as like Gollum, you know, Gollum from Lord of the Rings. Oh, my precious. How do I get it? What do I want? You know, the strategies that we uh, involve ourselves in to get what we want, our likes and our dislikes, at this very kind of primal or archetypal level. And when we're thinking about, well, we're not really thinking about it, it's these unconscious urges about what we think we want. It's often not what consciously we know or value to be beneficial for us. It's really at this sort of more deeper and murkier level where it's really often out of these motives that we're not, you know, if, if someone clearly asked you to state them, you'd say, no, I don't want that or I don't think that. But that's what's driving the show a lot of the time if we're not paying attention. Well, the purpose of mindfulness, the purpose of this practice, one of the purposes, is to shine the light on these unconscious tendencies of mind, these habit patterns, the conditioning, the projections, the the ideations we have about experience, and to really bring them into consciousness so we can see. Do they align with the truth of things or not? Are they really what? We want for ourselves, our, our, our intentions or our values. This is a huge part of what we do here. In this documentary, I was talking about one of the ways they explored this faculty of attention, which the Buddha talked about all the time, was watching, filming people, recording people while they were watching magicians perform tricks. Because what magicians do are all these, you know, they call it slate of hand, and they get you to pay attention to this while they're doing something over here. And so they have these recorders where they track people's eye movement, and, you know, they say if you do this kind of gesture, people's natural um, tendency is to follow that, and you can do anything over here. And so they really see that we have this limited attention span, a very narrow field of what we can actually pay attention to. We kind of think we're noticing everything. I mean, as you're sitting here, you're seeing me and the lamp and Guy and Carol and everything else. But what's actually happening is there's a very rapid uh, assembling of all of that, a lot out of memory of what we expect to see. In the documentary, I, I think I'm remembering this clearly, there was one 
brain researcher who said, what we can actually clearly pay attention to is about the size of your thumbnail if you stretch your arm out. Everything else we kind of weave together or we're moving very rapidly you know, to and fro to create this synthesis that we call what's out there or our perception. So it's really interesting as you start to, to um, look at your own experience to see the truth of that. You know, it's, it's a myth that we can multitask. What we're doing is moving rapidly between things at the deterioration of all of the things we're trying to do. We're not doing any of them 100%. They're all degraded a little. Well, mindfulness really has um, the, the potential of increasing this clarity of perception. So our field actually is wider and we're really more aware of what's going on. There is a sense of being connected. And I often think a really good mindfulness pra- practitioner might have a career in Las Vegas actually going around and you know fooling those guys with the three shells and saying, where is it? It's like, maybe you could figure it out after this retreat. If you want a, a career change, you could try Las Vegas. So it really is about a training to see clearly what's actually happening and not just in this kind of very um, matter-of-fact, you know, am I walking and what's the landscape like, but really getting to know our inner landscape and the outer world because we do a lot of projecting and have our unconscious play out in the outer world, but to really see for ourselves this inner reality, and to see how much it's affected by our perceptions and projections, our conditioning, how much they are filters on how we view the world, and to to question that, to really see how much can we really align with the truth of things, the way things are, without so much those filters or projections. And there's other research that has been done that, that just clearly shows that um, most of the time we're not present, as I say, that we're lucky if 50% of the time we're somewhat in the present moment and actually here in our experience that 50% of the time, if not more, the mind is wandering and that the wandering mind is an unhappy mind. Even if we're thinking about something pleasant, it's actually unhappy because there is that sense of disconnection of not being fully present. And when we're at the mind that's wandering is usually in some state of grasping or aversion. What do I want? How do I get it? How do I get what I, get rid of what I don't want, get more of what I do want? You know, the strategizing, the planning, the worrying that we do so much of the time. This is suffering. And the Buddha said the antidote to suffering or the way out of suffering is to, to wake up to see things clearly. This is insight meditation. And to really start to see that happiness is actually to be found in the here and now, that this is what it's all about. And so it invites this radical shift in the way we relate to our experience. Instead of just being lost most of the time, that there's this possibility of being fully present. But this radical shift requires a change in how we relate to experience. We have to start to prefer stillness or presence to distraction. And as Joseph Goldstein said, distraction is the habit of the mind, habit of our mind. I mean, we've trained ourselves 
to be distracted. And this shift is, no, I'd rather be present. I'd rather know what's happening here. I'd rather start to trust this experience instead of the machinations of my mind trying to control things in past or future. So it's really quite different to start to know this for oneself, that the sense of connectedness and um, presence is actually the doorway to less suffering, to happiness, to freedom. When we start to look at the mind, and this is a big part of what we do in meditation, is really study the nature of the mind. Yes, we start with these simple practices of awareness of breath and body, sounds, etc. But the true work of meditation is to study the mind. And we start to see that we're deeply wired to make connections. You know, you've seen that. You're like thinking a thought and then another thought, and then you think, how did I get to thinking about this, you know, wind up in this place thinking about being in third grade or in Chicago or, you know, uh, shopping in the supermarket. And you see there was just these bounces of thoughts that were just somewhat tangentially connected. We start to see that that's actually even, it can be, you know, we get, we're so used to doing it, it's, you know, I was going to say fascinating. It's usually not fascinating. You're kind of like, what? Why am I wasting my time thinking about this? Um, but you start to see that that's what the mind does. It makes connections. And it's not to say that we shouldn't think or we shouldn't do that because that's where a lot of creativity comes from. These ideas sparking off each other and, and new uh, ways of relating to experience. So again, meditation isn't about think, not thinking, but it's certainly about creating a different relationship to thought where we actually start to, to choose which we start to recognize thought and the nature of the thought and have more of a choice about which thoughts we follow. And we do this through the practice of mindfulness. It's moment-to-moment attention that we'll be cultivating here that, that all of you have some degree of familiarity with. And you're probably aware that... Um, Mindfulness is becoming mainstream. Actually, for us, it's becoming mainstream. Someone else we were talking to said, you guys, you're so out on the the limb, you know, the edge of whatever that, you know, what you think is mainstream isn't. But relatively speaking, to 10 years ago or 20 years ago, it's certainly becoming more known. And, you know, it used to be I don't know when, 10, when was that book came out? It was Zen and everything, you know, Zen and the art of archery or flower arranging or motorcycle maintenance. Well, now it's mindfulness, right? It's mindfulness and stress reduction and in health and in prisons, in the workplace, in education, um, businesses are using it. It's just mindfulness and everything. And there's a huge amount of research that's being done um, validating the benefits of actually being present, of knowing what your experience is in this direct way. So it's really interesting for us as Dharma practitioners. I mean, yes, we teach mindfulness, but in the context of this whole breadth of teaching and depth of teaching that the Buddha um, has handed down to us. So it's a big conundrum for us. How do we engage with that? 
world of mindfulness teaching and training that's not being connected to the Buddha's teachings. It's not being connected to Dhamma. So a lot of questioning about that. But it's really fascinating to see that this is actually the doorway through which the Dharma will probably have the biggest influence on the West, is through this training of mindfulness. And so it's really interesting to be part of that discussion and, and see that for many people it is a doorway. They start with just mindfulness, but um, they get interested because they see the truths that get revealed and want to understand more. So it's it's an exciting time. But we're using this term mindfulness, you know, we have used it as Dharma practitioners for, of course, many, 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 many years. But even as it comes into the culture, um, it's really interesting to question what is it actually? What are we talking about? Are we talking about the same thing when we're talking about mindfulness? And you'd think it'd be a simple question, but it's actually not. Different Buddhist traditions have different understandings of what mindfulness is. Even different Buddhist teachers within the same tradition will have different understandings of what it is, especially when you get down to, to the real detail of it. The, the word that we're translating as mindfulness, the Pali word, which was the language that the Buddhist teachings were written down in 2,000 years ago, was, they were written down in a language called Pali. The word that is being translated as mindfulness is sati, S-A-T-I. And the root of that word, it was a common word at the time of the Buddha, and it simply meant memory, had something to do with memory or remembering. But as he did with many words in his teaching, he took a word that was common and gave it a twist. So it doesn't just mean remembering, though it has a definite uh, connection to that meaning because we often say being mindful is easy. Remembering to be mindful is really difficult. So the remembering or the, the bringing into context our experiences is a part, uh, an important part of this practice of mindfulness. And so you probably have for yourself a simple definition of what it is, but, you know, again, I've, I've challenged many senior students with this question, and, and it's, it can be hard to actually clearly define what this word means for us. We probably know that the essence means being in the moment, you know, be here now, this is a, the mantra. But I want to expand our understanding of that, um, because I think to understand it how the Buddha meant it, it, it gives, you could even say, a radical twist on, on that simple being in the moment, being here and now. And I was at a talk of another teacher where he used this, this example that I thought was helpful, so I'm going to in, in, invoke it here as well. He um, asked, he gave three examples of people doing things and asked, are they being mindful? And the three examples were a rock climber, a surgeon, no, sorry, let me start, start again. A burglar, a rock climber, and a surgeon. So here's three people. So the, And the burglar is someone who's sneaking into your home at night trying to steal your stuff. So right, they're being very careful. Rock climber, free, let's even make it more difficult, a free rock climber, you know, no ropes or whatever. So they're having to hang on to the, the rock as they climb. And a surgeon, you know, hopefully being very careful as they're cutting. Are, are they being mindful? What about the burglar? Are they being mindful as they creep through your house? Yes. The rock climber? Yes. The surgeon? 
<laughs> That's what I was saying. Yeah, you hope so. So, yes, in one way they are, but in the way I am going to be using this term mindfulness and how I want to expand for our um, understanding here as practice, they're not. They're not being mindful because mindfulness has a lot more to it. As well as this sense of knowing what you're doing, there's some kind of reflectiveness that you know you're knowing. There's a clear knowing that mindfulness is functioning as a mental factor. And it doesn't mean, you know, oh, I'm doing this and I know I'm doing it, I'm doing that and I know I'm doing it. But there's some kind of reflectiveness that's happening that goes beyond bare awareness and brings somehow the context of the experience into our awareness. The Buddha talked about uh, pajanati, this clearly knowing, this knowing that we're breathing, knowing that we're sitting, walking, or standing. Always emphasize this knowing quality. So it's not just a kind of mindless mindlessness, like the burglar is just, all they, all a burglar cares about is not making the floor creak so you, you know, so you won't wake up. But they're not reflecting on you know, their inner experience and what's actually happening. They just have this one simple objective. Same with the other two. When we talk about mindfulness as true mindfulness, and in the Pali it's called samasati. It means right or wise or perfected or leading towards wisdom, mindfulness. And in that sense, this is a little bit of a diversion, but it's a path factor. There's the Four Noble Truths. Many of you heard about the Fourth Noble Truth, Eightfold Path, in that there are these eight factors, um, and mindfulness is one of them, and they're factors that we develop as we do our practice. And this is the context I'm talking about. Mindfulness is in is samasati, right or wise mindfulness. Mindfulness that has a purpose or a function. And so... Mindfulness in the context of insight meditation has a real function. It's to know clearly what's happening and to um, lead to insight. That is its purpose or its functioning, which is, as you can see, not the case for any of those three examples that I gave. It leads to disidentification. We don't get so caught up in our thoughts and ideas and sense of self. And it reduces suffering. The, this is the functioning of mindfulness when it's true mindfulness, when it's a kind of mindfulness we'll be talking about in this retreat. This is samasati or right mindfulness. And again, you can see this is not what the burglar, the rock climber, or the surgeon are involved in. This is not that kind of mindfulness. Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's one of our preeminent Buddhist scholars, um, who uh, has done a lot of the translating of the Buddha's original words into English, says that in the proper practice of right mindfulness, sati, mindfulness, has to be integrated with sampajanya, clear comprehension. So that's kind of this context and knowing what's happening. And it is only when these two work together that right mindfulness can fulfill its intended purpose. Samasati, or right mindfulness, must always be guided by right view, steered by right intention, grounded in the three ethical factors, and cultivated in conjunction with samavayama, right effort. Right effort necessarily presupposes the distinction of mental states 
into the unwholesome and the wholesome. That's quite dense, but what he's doing there is putting right mindfulness in the context of the Eightfold Path that I spoke about just briefly, that it's really very central and works together with all these other path factors. But this is where we start to see the power or the functioning of mindfulness as we begin to understand the context in which within which it was taught and within which we practice it in a retreat like this. So we use the mindfulness to see clearly. This is what mindfulness, the, the purpose and the functioning of mindfulness is, to see clearly. And when we start seeing clearly, it develops insights. Why? This is called insight meditation. And it doesn't mean, you know, that you have to become fully awakened. You just, oh, Right. This is how my mind works. Or this is what it's like to take a step and really be present. These are all different forms of insight. But a big part of it is just noticing the nature of reality. And again, I'll briefly mention something that we might go into later in greater detail, but what's called the three characteristics, that if you start to look at the nature of reality, you see that it's impermanent, it's always changing, that... It's unsatisfactory at some deep inherent level. We can't, we keep grasping for things and wanting to find happiness in the experiences of our lives and not finding that. And that there's nothing solid there at the core. There's no permanent self, abiding self. This is the pointing of mindfulness is to start revealing that kind of insight or understanding. But even on a simpler level than that, Mindfulness, when it's really being developed in the context of which we're doing it here and that I'm speaking about, it has the tendency to develop wholesome qualities of mind and decrease unwholesome ones. Just through the clear seeing, just through the recognition of those experiences in ourselves. It's like if you pick up a hot coal, no one has to tell you to put it down. You know that that's... Um, painful. It's going to cause suffering. Or if you experience the, the beauty of nature, you don't have to grasp onto it, but just let it, let it actually uh, awaken something in you. That's, when my, that's how mindfulness functions. It just naturally reveals the truth of our experience so that we let go of what causes suffering and we notice and, and develop the wholesome states of mind. And we'll talk more about that development of wholesome states also, because this is a really important part of the functioning. And you've probably even seen that today when you've noticed the mind getting tight or reactive and you're getting all invested in something, identified with something. And then luckily some moment comes where you go, oh, what's happening here? Oh, right, I'm really aversive or resistant or fearful or whatever. And the very mindfulness gives a little bit of space, gives a little bit of uh, acceptance or openness to whatever's happening. So this is its functioning that it does very naturally. So we start to use the mindfulness to explore our inner experience to actually get in touch with what's happening for us. And it's it's a whole world that opens up. It's did I I can't remember, I had it in my notes to talk about snorkeling. Did I talk about snorkeling? No, no, no. <laughs> 
I couldn't. I was going to talk about it, but I didn't talk about it already. It's kind of like snorkeling. Um, I remember the first time I had the opportunity. I was in my you know mid twenties to go snorkeling, and you know first went to this beach where people were doing it and didn't have the equipment, and kind of going, "What are they looking at? It's just water, you know." And maybe you can see the bottom. It's like I really—it was a mystery to me. You know, what are they swimming back and forth? It's just water or deeper water. And then we went and bought a little mask and a snorkel. It's like you put it on and you look, and you know, if there are fishes, there were beautiful fishes to see. It was like, wow! It's, there's another whole world that I had no idea existed. Meditation is like that. I mean, some of you have been meditating for a long time. Maybe you've forgotten what it was like to, to. You know, just close the eyes, drop into this inner world, and it was like this landscape being revealed, this richness of texture and nuance that most of us weren't connected to, didn't understand, didn't know even was available um, in this same way with this direct power of clear seeing. So we start to investigate in this way our own inner landscape. And there's this beautiful poem by Mary Oliver, that speaks about what this is like. And it's it's an obvious one to pick for a retreat like this because it's actually called Mindful. I don't think she's a formal meditator, but she certainly is a student of the mind and the heart and of nature, and she brings them all together so beautifully. She says, Every day I see or hear something that more or less kills me with delight, that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light. It was what I was born for, to look, to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world, to instruct myself over and over in joy and acclamation. Nor am I talking about the exceptional, the fearful, the dreadful, the very extravagant, but of the ordinary, the common, the very drab, the daily presentations. O good scholar, I say to myself, how can you help but grow wise with such teachings as these? the untrimmable light of the world, the ocean shine, the prayers that are made out of grass. So it's just a few things she said. Inside this soft world, this this world that we start to investigate, oh, good scholar, how can you help but grow wise with such teachings as these? As we start to pay attention and really understand our experience. So as I said um, earlier, we're often lost in past and future, not actually here. But as we develop mind, and the mindfulness, the you know, common understanding is, well, you have to be here now. It's like this moment. Yes, that's true. And I think there's a real wisdom in, um, or a necessity even, in understanding what I call the three times, which include past, present, well, our past, present, and future, but relating to them a little differently than we normally do. So this is the context or the wisdom part of the mindfulness as we start to open up our field of perception and begin to understand what's going on. We, of course, start with the present moment. That has to be there, where we connect with 
what's happening. And again, you know, in Las Vegas, they do, there's those signs, you have to be present to win. You know, you can't win the, the jackpot if you're not actually there. It's the same with mindfulness. You have to be present. But to really understand what's happening, it, we need to broaden the field of our understanding just a little bit. So typical scenario, sitting in meditation, trying to be mindful with the breath, with the body sounds, whatever. And then we notice that we're lost. You know, we've jumped on that train of thought, of association, that that trajectory of worry or planning that we're so familiar with. But we've woken up. Somehow the mindfulness has reasserted itself, that moment of grace, and we're present again. This is a really important moment. It's really important to actually be grateful for that moment of waking up, not judging yourself, oh, you stupid so-and-so, you know, how long were you lost? And if you knew how to meditate, you wouldn't do that. And everyone else knows how to do this and you don't. And da, 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 da. You know, I'm sure you're all familiar with that kind of mind stream. That isn't helpful. You know, it's like training any animal. You know, the classic is if you're training a puppy to come and he doesn't come immediately, and when he does come, you beat him up, not going to be very likely to come again the next time, right? It's like, why should I come to you? You just cause me suffering. Well, the mind is kind of the same. So it's like, welcome back. You know, glad you're here again. Here we are, present. But what what we need to do is notice just a little bit what the tenor of the mind, the atmosphere of the mind was. What was it we're obsessed with? And sometimes it's helpful just to notice thinking. We just note that, oh, thinking. Sometimes it can be helpful to give a little um, name for the kind of thinking, planning, worrying, remembering, or Melinda, or mother, or, you know, work, or whatever it might be. But even more, sometimes it's helpful to actually distinguish the attitude of the mind towards what was happening. Were we trying to hold on to something, grasp at it, hang on to it? Were we pushing something away with aversion or frustration? Or were we just really spaced out? And these are descriptions of what we call greed, aversion, and delusion, these classic tendencies of mind. So we can just take a moment to notice that. It can happen in a moment that we can recognize. It's not, oh, I was thinking about that, and I thought about that, and that made me think about that. That's not so helpful. It's like just a snapshot. What was happening? What was I lost in? Because we, we do this as a training to start to see the tendencies of mind. We want to bring this into the conscious awareness. So it's not subconscious, unconscious running the show. This is part of our bringing it in to consciousness. In the present, we make a choice. Oh, I saw I was lost in that thought or really resisting that or anxious about this. But the mindfulness, and this is the huge thing, is allowing this choice point. What do I do now? And as we deepen in our practice, as the wisdom develops, we make wiser choices. But we make a choice. Do I? And sometimes we see, I'm going to grab that from the past, and I'm going to bring it here, and I'm going to gnaw on it like an old bone. I want to, you know, be furious with my neighbor who cut down the tree, or I want to be, you know, planning my revenge on my co-worker who took my lunch one day. You know, we, we see ourselves sometimes do that, and this is part of making it conscious. It's like when you see this, you see how much you're creating your suffering. But we make some choice. Hopefully we make a choice to let go or to come into more ease or acceptance or um, equanimity. 
And then it's, I call it the future moment, but really, of course, it's only the present. We, we reflect a little, did, did, am I going in the direction I want to go in? Am I steering the ship of the mind, the body, in the direction of less suffering, more well-being, more happiness? So there's this little bit of tracking or checking, you know. And again, it's not really the future, but it's like, well, I made that choice to steer in this direction. Did it go in a direction I wanted to go? Was it was it successful? And as I say all this, it sounds complicated, and I'm not saying you have to do it all the time, but it's something that we learn to do just like that, you know, like anything that seems cumbersome at first. It's this coming into the moment, this recognition of whatever we were caught in, the mindfulness exerts the wisdom that just says, just let go, and we're fully present again. And that worked. Or we realize perhaps we have to do something a little stronger. Um, perhaps we need to um, do an antidote or something like that. But we see we're making choices. And what we start to see in meditation is we're actually making choices all the time. We're making choices all the time about what we pay attention to, what we think about, where we go, what we do. But most of them are unconscious choices. What mindfulness does is bring the power of that choosing, that intention, into awareness so we can hopefully make better and clearer intentions. And when we talk in this way about intentional making choices or, you know, wiser choices, it's not rigid like a railroad track. You know, there's only one right response and one way to go. It's more like a compass. As your values, and we started the retreat with the values of the precepts and taking refuge, as they start to get more integrated into your life, they become like compass points of how do I steer towards greater happiness and well-being, not causing suffering to myself or to others. So this is not rigid saying this is the right way to do this and the wrong way to do this, but really a waking up of our inner sense of wisdom and well-being and knowing how to navigate like that. So it's a lot about balancing. You might know that the Buddha's path of practice is called the middle way between extremes, the extreme of overindulgence or of negativity and asceticism and, and, and uh, kind of a rigidity on one side. It's like always finding this middle way. And it's a balancing act. Again, it's not rigid like the railroad tracks. This guy, I, I didn't read about it, Carol said, oh, he did cross was it Niagara Falls on the tightrope? Why anyone would want to do that, I have no idea. I guess he's famous now, but anyway. But I'm sure he didn't, you know, grab that pole or whatever you call it rigidly and try to hang on for dear life. He had to be moving so much in tune with the breeze and the movement of the rope and everything. This is the kind of fluidity and energy that we need to bring to our meditation, that it's always a balancing, always um, an adjusting. There's this great story of um, this great teacher, Ajahn Chah. He was a Thai forest meditation teacher uh, last century, unfortunately been dead for a number of years now. But many Westerners started to come and practice with him and uh, study with him. And in, in those in Asia, is often the case, the teachings are just all in the open. Your interviews and instructions are all, you know, it's all like this in a group. You don't, you don't have private interviews. So people would just sit and hear him give teachings all day long. And finally, one student came up to him and said, you know, I'm really unhappy with the way you're teaching because it's very confusing. Of course, you know, 
no Asian person would come up to a, a revered teacher and say this, but Westerners weren't quite so uh, respectful. But he was really unhappy. You, you know, I hear you talk to one person, you say do this, and the next person comes up and you say do the complete opposite. It just doesn't make sense, you know, what's going on here? And Ajahn Chah just kind of smiled and said, look, it's like this. There's this, this broad path that's heading in the direction I know is towards more freedom. But some people are veering off to the right, so I say, go left, go left. And other people are veering off to the left, so I say, go right, go right. It sounds like a different instruction. All it is is finding this middle way, this way of, of harmony and, and uh, compatibility that's, that leads to deepening, that leads to more understanding. So we have to be our own internal uh, guide in this, really tracking. Is this path and practice leading in the direction I want it to go in? Not, you know, yes, you, it's great to hear teachings and to be, to practice in the, with the support of others, but it is really about being our own researcher in a way. When we close the mind, this is what, when we close the eyes and start to go inside, this is what we start to do. And so it's a real training that we're involved in here. Again, not with a right way or a wrong way, but with a purpose and a path of unfolding and bringing the wisdom in, starting to learn from our own experience, seeing the ways we cause most of our own suffering. It's very easy to project it out there. Oh, it's this situation's fault that I'm unhappy or that person's fault that I'm unhappy. But if you really look honestly and and clearly at what's happening, we create most of our own suffering. And so we have to start to study the mind. And when we say mind, we include heart and the emotions. Mind, heart, it's almost synonymous. We study this. And then as the mindfulness develops, it naturally becomes what's called satipanya, mindfulness wisdom. There's another great Thai forest meditation master, Buddhadasa, who never talked just about sati, mindfulness. He always talked about satipanya. Because that's when mindfulness is really functioning, when it has this capacity to wake us up and to show us clearly what's happening, show us clearly the nature of things. So we want to develop this satipanya, and you'll see for yourself that it naturally lets go of when the, if the mindfulness truly meets an experience and the experience is suffering or aversion or rejection or resistance, that There'll be a natural, whether it's a true letting go, and sometimes you've probably seen that. You just let go of the whole mess of entanglement or just a little bit of space that we can actually get curious about what's going on here, start to uh, try to understand it. And so it just starts to do, do that very naturally, this sati panya. When we start to look at the mind, though, we do see its nature very clearly. Some, you know, if it's you're new to meditation, it might be a revelation. Many of you are all too familiar with the kind of crazy nature of this mind, how it just runs all over the place. It seems like such a simple thing to just sit still, no, uh, you know, no pressure, no um, big objective, just to be present in a kind of easeful way. Be with the breath, be with the body. 
what happens? You know, the mind runs all over the place. Did I pay the bills? Did I turn the stove off? You know, did I lock the door? Did I, you know, remember this? What about the kids? What about that project I need to do? Where is my career going? You know, what am I going to do now with my life? Endless, right? And so what happens with that is as the mind dwells on those kind of thoughts, there's a restless energy that gets created in the body. In early days of retreat, you'll probably find yourself slamming between, you know, this agitated restlessness, and it's like someone turned the lights out and you're just asleep. And how those two go together, it's, it's, it's really weird, but somehow they do, and it's like you're just being thrown about like a little rag doll uh, between those two. But it creates this cycle, this loop that feeds itself. As the body gets restless, it starts to be aversion just to sitting, and then the mind gets resistive, and then that starts to spin out, and they, they just feed each other. You, you probably know that very well. And this is a state that, you know, we find ourselves in meditation because we're paying attention, but it's one that's actually quite common in daily life too, but we're not so conscious about it. But it's running the show a lot of the time. Mindfulness is a training to direct our mental energy into the present moment instead of feeding that feedback loop of restlessness of mind leading to restlessness of body and back again, a kind of agitated state that we can find ourselves in. It's seeing if we can take that energy and actually out of that radical shift that I spoke about earlier of preferring being present, preferring stillness to this agitation, can we actually take that? It's kind of an Aikido move. Can we take that energy and just get curious about what's here now and prefer this? It's not easy, you know, as you know. You've already had a day of finding out how difficult it is. We're so trained to want something else, want something that's not here. There's a great Calvin cartoon that I like to read on retreat because he's... Calvin and Hobbes, you know, the boy with his imaginary tiger, such a great uh, exposer of our mind and and psyche and wants and dislikes. So Calvin and Hobbes are climbing a tree. And Calvin says, I suppose the secret to happiness is to appreciate the moment. I, for example, take great delight in being right here, right now, doing what we're doing. Seems like a good meditator, right? But Hobbes, a voice of wisdom, goes, of course, you're supposed to be in school. (laughs) And Calvin says, I couldn't appreciate those moments. But that's what we're like. You know, it's never good enough. And, And even as we tell ourselves that we're being present, there's some agenda that we're having about the experience. So how do we stay present? How do we invite the mind? As I said earlier, through this power of mindfulness giving us a choice, And it really is possible to begin to change these habits of mind. They've run the show for so long, so it's not going to change overnight. It's not going to change by the end of this retreat, I'm sorry to tell you. But it certainly is the direction that we go in. We start to change these old habits as we start to see how they operate, how they literally, if we're not aware of them, direct the show. And once we see them clearly, again, there's this choice point of deciding, do we want to go that way or not? Follow that train of thought, you know, hold on to that that grudge or that resistance or resentment. 
Maharaj, the Indian saint, says, of what we understand, we are the masters. Of what we do not understand, we are the slaves. So it really is bringing understanding in so that we have this engaged relationship with our inner experience. So we're in touch with it. We know what's happening. We know our intentions and our values. And we're always having this possibility of aligning more and more. So it's a skill we develop. And we really, that's why we call it practice. It's not easy. It doesn't come automatically. We have to do it again and again. But like anything, we can develop this as a skill by tracking our experience, by starting to watch moment to moment what happens in the mind, what happens in the body as we think about this or get lost here or the body goes through its struggles as it will do in these days, especially the early days of retreat can feel quite challenging in the body as we do these hours of sitting. But we become our own first person investigator. You know, you're your own research assistant. What's happening here? What's going on in this mind and body? To get curious about it is the most important thing. And then we start to see this huge insight that can happen is that it's not what hap- what's happening that's important, but how we're relating to it. This is a radical shift again in, in our practice. When we shift from blaming experience or wanting this or not wanting that to actually seeing it's our attitude to what's happening that's actually determining whether we're suffering or not. All kinds of challenging experiences can be happening. We're not getting what we want, or we don't like the food, or it's too hot, or it's too cold. If we're invested in that, if we're identified with that, there's suffering. Those same experiences can be happening, and the mind has some equilibrium, some ease and acceptance, and it's okay. It's whatever temperature it is. The food is what it is. It's enough. It's okay. So... Checking the attitude of how you're relating to experience. We'll be talking about this a lot. Am I wanting it or not wanting it? Liking it or not liking it? Really helpful. Not to go overboard with questions. One way, um, no, I won't go into that now. Maybe talk about it tomorrow. But to be a little curious about um, the mind. You know, to be this researcher of your mind. What happens when I dwell on these kinds of thoughts? What happens when I hold the body in this rigid way or try to reject this experience? We start to see, of course, we can't control our thoughts, the thoughts that come into the mind. When they're here, they're here. But once we notice them, once we bring mindfulness to them, then we do have a choice. And this is where the responsibility starts to come in. You know, Gil Franzer has this great line, we're we're not to blame, but we're responsible. When mindfulness comes in, we do have this choice that we can influence, not completely control. It's not like I'm only going to think these kind of thoughts and never those kind of thoughts. doesn't work that way. But when you bring the mindfulness in and you notice the kind of thoughts that are present, then there is this possibility of shifting. And so a big part of what I want to convey this evening is that this practice isn't passive. It's not just bare awareness. I call it lump on a log practice. It's like, oh, I'm tired, I'm sleepy, that's what's happening. Oh, just tired, sleepy, or the mind is filled with rage. Oh, mind filled with rage, 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 rage. 
you know, yes, you're being mindful in a way, but it's not satipanya. It's not bringing in the clarity of seeing what's a wise response to this. How do I work with this in a way that's more skillful? The first avenue of mindfulness is always the recognition, what's happening. And often that's enough. We just recognize aversion or lust or fear or sadness or grief or whatever and can see with that little letting go, a little loosening. But often that's not enough. Um, often we need to bring in a little, little more interactive uh, process or practice. So we start out of trusting this uh, development of mindfulness that we like to describe as this relaxed, interested, kind awareness. And as the mind, so that's more than bare awareness because it's bringing these qualities. It's bringing the relaxation, the kindness, and the interest. Really helpful, and and that really can be um, a lot of the. Um, antidote or the skillful response that we need to bring to our experience. But sometimes even that's not enough. You know, we're caught in some way, there's really a sense of suffering or contraction. And so we'll talk more about this as the days go by, but, you know, to perhaps do some loving-kindness practice that we'll introduce tomorrow afternoon, or to deliberately turn the attention to something else, or to go to something neutral like sounds, um, something spacious. Sometimes we just need to get up and go for a walk, not, you know, in the formal sittings we stay, you know, till the end of the sitting, but to just recognize that the energy needs to be balanced in a way. So we start to engage with our process. It's not just passive, oh, this is just what's happening. We get curious about our experience. What is happening? And so mindfulness really is a kind of reprogramming um, where we're taking what was uh, some time ago, perhaps, a really effective, bright mind. Uh, have you seen Pasha, the, you know, Jenny at, uh, and Grove's six-year-old son? I mean, he's just so bright, and he's interested in everything, asking all these questions. We all had minds like that once. And then habit and time and, and difficult experiences kind of, you know, we can grow a little crusty around the edges, a little stuck in our patterns. And actually, you know, doing things, indulging in patterns that, that continue to cause us suffering. Mindfulness is reprogramming. Starting to see, you know, what actually serves us in, in, our, in our lives, in our process, and starting to really become present for our lives, show up in our lives, accept what's here, and bring wisdom and compassion and kindness to the experience. This is the possibility of mindfulness. There's this um, prayer, I forget, I think it has a name, I, I don't know what its name is, but Someone, I heard it from someone where it goes something like this. Dear God, so far today I haven't been judgmental, greedy, or aversive. But I'm just about to get out of bed and then I'll really need your help. <laughs> well, this is the help that we need to not be judgmental, greedy, or aversive. And it's the simple knowing what's happening. A relaxed, kind, interested awareness. Bringing that moment to moment a moment after moment to our experience 
is the path of greater happiness, less suffering, and more freedom. So at the end of our Dharma talks, we just like to take a moment to let the word settle. You don't have to change your posture. It's not a formal sitting. It's just taking a breath, letting go of what wasn't useful, letting go of all the words, actually, just becoming present in your own experience for a moment or two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.